Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Hello, enlightened investors. Delighted to be back with you again today as we take a look at Planning Our Legacy, a passive investor's guide for wealth preservation. Spencer Hillegas is the CEO and co-founder of Madison Investing, a real estate investment firm that specializes in real estate syndications. As a passive investor and active investor, he understands the unique challenges that busy professionals face when starting out on their real estate investment journey. Spencer's mission is to arm investors with the know-how they need to make confident investment decisions tailored to their individual life goals. Spencer graciously appeared as one of the early guests on my previous podcast for a more intimate and in-depth perspective on what makes this accomplished investor and entrepreneur excel. You can go to episode 15 of Creekside Chats with successful real estate investors. So, Spencer, take us into the show and share. Oh, and that helped you to be who you are. Yeah, that was great to reconnect with you. I think right before we started recording, obviously, I think I thought we had talked maybe a year ago. And it was actually, I think it's been a couple of deaths. That's pandemic time. Yeah, pandemic time is a blur, but it's just a pleasure. So thank you for having me back on. I think in terms of, you know, my journey, I have to just say that I never expected to be running a full-time passive investment private equity group. You know, I sit here now in the Bay Area, California, aka Silicon Valley, beautiful little island actually called Alameda, right across from Oakland with like a nice postcard view of San Francisco. But it certainly didn't start that way. And, you know, I think to give folks the cliffs notes these days, you know, we work with hundreds of investors to help them invest in apartments, self-storage, all these wonderful assets, these real estate assets that you and I both appreciate and you know so well, Alan. But back in the day, I mean, growing up, my dad was a real estate broker for 30 years. And so that was my first exposure. It sent me screaming for technology companies. <laughs> you know, similar experiences to parents who want the best for their kids. My dad was a very successful entrepreneur and he worked tirelessly at 4.30 a.m. wake ups. That confused me whenever I saw him do that. And he was making me work in his business, you know, as a kid and, a, and eventually more so as a teenager, I didn't want to do open houses. I didn't want to clean out rentals that needed to be, you know, prepared for sale and opening up ancient fridges that hadn't been turned on in a long time. And so that was without grossing out the audience too fast. I'll just say that was my introduction to real estate. And now I find myself on the other side of a 13 year technology leadership career. So I was in fintech or finance tech companies for. 13 years. I have you know two kids of my own now. And that whole journey really was formative for me, but I didn't expect to come out the other side of it realizing most people are kind of just sleepwalking the way I did financially through that whole path. You know, I started with, I was even working for financially savvy companies. I didn't get this point yet, Alan, which was, I worked at Intuit. You know, people know it as TurboTax and QuickBooks, et cetera. Yet I, then I went progressively earlier stage companies because I didn't, at least I knew enough to know that I wasn't really chasing money personally. Yeah, I mean, sure, we wanted a comfortable lifestyle, but I wanted to be make sure I was growing and learning aggressively and without having to compromise putting food on the table and paying Bay Area rents and mortgage payments. And so I push harder and harder and sacrifice pay, you know, 
higher pay is, and led big teams earlier than I probably should have. At ages like 26, I was leading the teams of 200 people way in over my skis. And I think that looking back, there was a few key moments that really gave me my why behind that. And right now, it's just a blessing to be able to wake up every day and help other people from all parts of the country. You know, really, there's two big camps of folks that we help these days. And the first is similar to my profile and Jennifer's, which was folks who were working full-time still in highly paid jobs at different tech companies and different industries. And then a second profile, which is folks who are, you know, longtime entrepreneurs, folks who are independently wealthy, and they're looking for just more long-term legacy places to put their capital, particularly right now, I think when uh, inflation is taking its toll and things look pretty darn volatile, depending on where you want to look. So anyways, that was probably more than you wanted on the first commentary there, but just wanted to kind of catch folks up a little bit. Spencer, thanks for sharing that with us. I liked your comment about a sleepwalking through life. And it's just uh, being in psychology just amazes me how many people do just sleepwalk through life. And then looking back on my life's trajectory, I can honestly say I spent the first 40 years of my life doing exactly that. And it's an unfortunate ways of life energies, but it happens so often and so frequently. I can see why uh, growing up in a home where your father was a successful real estate broker and you're looking at the real estate industry, not particularly favorably because (laughs) not to disparage brokers because brokers are a very important part of this industry, but it is a job. It is not a wealth development mechanism. And that is your introduction to real estate. I can see why it took you a while to really come back to understanding the importance of real estate to developing wealth and preserving your legacy. So without further ado, let's get into that aspect of it. And as you say, Spencer, entrepreneurs are fantastic at building a machine, but they're not so great at preserving their wealth once they retire. What do you mean by that? Yeah, this has actually been quite a fascinating recent topic. It's I don't know what the universe is trying to tell me, but I, I feel like this has been coming up with great frequency with personal life, friends and family, but as well as folks that we work with and invest alongside, you know, in particularly on Silicon Valley. I'll use that example that people like to, and I used to fantasize about well, candidly, which is I really was buying into that whole notion of this like Silicon Valley lottery from a wealth planning perspective, Alan, which is... Hey, maybe if I go find the next Uber, Google, Facebook, you know, pick one of these big, very, very well publicized and known broadly globally companies and folks who were very in very entry level roles in those early stage companies ended up with just enough equity to have a massive exit, IPO, acquisition, something along those lines, changes their life, really absolves them of all of their financial sins. And that doesn't happen for many people. I mean, frankly, it happens to a minuscule percentage of people who actually go in as workers inside of a tech company. But we were buying into that narrative for many years. And so now when I talk to folks, they're serial founders, if you will, you know, folks who are constantly starting early tech companies. And they make a great example for this answer that I was going to share with you, which is in this example, because the lesson's so important, which is the skills and drive and innovation and creativity which I have like an immense respect for, because frankly, I never thought of myself as any of those things as an entrepreneur. I haven't started a innovative type of software product. I run our company now, but I didn't build Uber, didn't, I don't plan to build a search engine, you know, anything like that. These folks went out and built these big products, these big companies, and those skills and drives and passions, et cetera, curiosities and leadership are not the skills associated with, and the knowledge associated with taking a seven or eight 
figure net worth or capital sitting there in a bank account after a recent event like that and doing something intelligent with it to protect it, to grow it, to structure it correctly for their loved ones, you know, for, and for longevity. And so I think this topic is fascinating because, you know, the past 10 years in the market has been so darn favorable for so many people and I'm so happy for them. And now they're sitting there going, what the heck do I do? Should I just drop it into an index fund? And I mean, I'm not the guy who's a binary, you know, let's go all real estate all day and, you know, kind of screw the, the stock market. That's not the message I ever want to convey because I think that's just too simplified view of the world, of course. But all that to say, I really believe that people have a choice to go and put on their hat more as a wealth preserver and builder than the person who's building a business. It's just two fundamentally different lenses. And so that's why we started to put our own capital into as limited partners, as investors years ago, many different apartment buildings and self-storage facilities and private deals. And now that's the genesis of our whole business, frankly. I mean, it started very organically because that is a problem that we were facing. We had you know, successful careers and we didn't quite know where to go next to go out and build wealth, let alone preserve that wealth for our sons, you know, and our family and to take care of the people that we love. So that is why we, you know, we're not like helping folks dump capital into places that are volatile, that don't generate cash flow. Those are the characteristics that I'm very interested in and target in our own criteria these days. So that's why, um, and particularly trying to stay away from the big bad inflation as of right now, which is very timely. And so savings accounts, we're just not going to get us there because the capital sitting in those accounts is unfortunately slowly whittling away every single day right now. <laughs> There's better places to to deploy. Absolutely. And I mean, even in, in accounts like, uh, I mean, insurance accounts are probably paying something like uh, 6% interest, mm -hmm. which is compared to what is it? 0.5% for a savings account. But even at 6%, when you've got inflation at 12%, you're losing money even at 6%. 100%. Um, yes. Yeah. So, and all indications are this isn't going to turn around real quickly here. Spencer, give us just a little bit idea as to how you came to the awareness that chasing these big gains and then not preserving well. What was the big turnaround moment for you? How did you come to the realization that this just really isn't a way to preserve well? Yeah. You know, I know that you're a fan of talking as, as we did years ago. I don't know how deep we went into it at that point, but I, I think these personal moments, these formative moments from our youth are really critical. And I think that I also, I'm a very reflective guy. And I think that's important for ourselves as leaders in a family or in a business. And with our kids. So, you know, in growing up and watching my dad's business and working for him, he came to great heights. And, and this is where the principle comes from that drives me now. We had one income, you know, we had one income as a family. And that is the same for many households in the country, not necessarily just real estate brokers, but you have active income. That active income is just as, as many folks in the real estate community talk about often is like trading your time and your sweat equity for income. The moment we stop, the moment that broker stops, that income stops flowing. You know, Robert Kiyosaki, which is, it's tough to not reference when you're talking about real estate stuff. He talks about that in the comparison of carrying the buckets from the well to the pipeline. And that really stuck with me. But even earlier was the dark decade, as we call it in our family, when unfortunately we went through a very tough time. You know, I lost my younger brother to cancer. This is many years ago, but he passed away. You know, parents, as they often do in those, you know, losing a child scenarios, they got divorced. And then a series of events happened that were all just pretty rough. You know, lost other members of the family beyond that. And so it caused a significant downsizing 
in my dad's business. And at the time, that really impacted our lifestyle. I mean, that we were living comfortably and then we had to downsize, you know, we had to downsize significantly. And that was a one income household and that was immediately impacted because of the way it was structured. And now I sit here with those kind of observations in mind. I didn't have the self-awareness or the business acumen to understand those principles and apply them as a guy who's about 40 with a couple of young kids and married here in the Bay Area now, but they stuck with me. And now through that lens, we have built, you know, dozens of income streams into our household. And I consider that some people in the W2 world, even now, Alan, like years into this entrepreneurship and investing journey, folks from my former tech life, they'll sit there and say, don't you feel nervous? You know, don't you feel worried about the risky path you've taken? And it's, I try to speak from compassion and empathy as best I can, because I was there and I understand. And I think most people will stay there in that mindset and that's a fine life, but I feel more stable and low risk compared to having the time when Jennifer and I were working our butts off. Yeah, I was in office 80 to 100 hours a week and making what most people consider great W-2 income, heavily taxed W-2 income that was fully under control by my employer. (laughs) So we feel quite in control and quite low risk based on the very hard work we've done thus far, but informed by those principles of if you are subject to that one type of bucket income, that active income, that that is not a risk tolerant place to be. That is certainly not a recession tolerant place to be. And so that has got to be the most formative thing that I went through as a child. Last comment I'll make on this, about 2015, roughly, 2015, I was working for the toughest of startup experiences. Wonderful company. We even use their product in our business now. But I look at that experience as to how hard I was working. And I didn't see my infant son for maybe a two-week period at one point because I was going in when it was dark in the morning. I was coming home when it was dark at night. And that was certainly a, a nice spark as well to kind of light the fuse for me. I had already had that awareness of something's got to give here. Like this strategy is not working, but dumping money and maxing out our 401k is not going to change our lives in the next 30 years. And you know, there's a place for retirement accounts, of course, and we use them now. But it's a, just a different way to approach that risk profile in a different way to, wait, to wake up and see the world from a financial lens and legacy and wealth building perspective for us. So that was long-winded, but thank you for bearing with while I unpack it. Spencer, it's just a perfect illustration, though. I'm sure you know that probably 95% of working Americans have a single income and no plans, essentially, for what they're going to do if that income goes away. And they're relying upon an employer to continue that income. Mm -hmm. But it's not just an employer. There's illnesses, there's disasters, there's all kinds of things that can come into play to undermine that single income. And even though people feel secure in those positions, oftentimes it's a very insecure way to to live a life. And, And certainly it's no way to develop wealth or preserve wealth. You're just never going to do it by working. <laughs> <laughs> so well, Spencer, tell us how it is that we can get in touch with you and take advantage of your wisdom and expertise. Yeah, we have a website. It's madisoninvesting.com and folks can book a time to connect. And I'm happy just to be a sounding board. And I really mean that. I think that oftentimes it's overwhelming. It was for me to go out as an LP, you know, as a limited partner investor. Because there's just so much information, it's almost challenging. 
So folks can find us at madisoninvesting.com and uh, set up a time to connect. And that information, of course, is in the show notes. Spencer, what is enough? How do you define enough? Oh my gosh, that is the question. I wasn't sure if we'd get there, Ellen, but that has been a very intense topic of both debate and inquiry with friends and family and investors alike, which is everyone assumes that you go out and read the, I read 24 books and 400 podcasts, for example, when I was ramping up to prepare to launch our business years ago. And that was probably more than I needed to. It was a little bit obsessive at the time, but no one out there will tell you that once you get to that point where maybe you could go sit on a beach because you've arrived, you know, supposedly you've arrived at the point where you've built something, you've got the wealth, you've got income coming in passively, but no one really wrestles from what I found with the question of, well, what if happens when that's not fulfilling? <laughs> and I think that is, don't get me wrong. I love Hawaii. I like Mexico. I love these wonderful places. I'm a big hobbyist. I really never get bored personally. There's plenty of wonderful outlets, creativity, and wise in this world. But I actually wrestle with this notion of what is enough quite often these days, both with some of the most wealthy people who I look up to, and it's maybe someday I'll hopefully arrive at the same levels that they will who invest with us now. But that's the question they wrestle with. And I'm fascinated now with that question as well, because it's such a deeply personal question, Alan. And I don't think it's a one size fits all, but I do think it is arguably the most important because we have all been programmed to continue building, you know, for the sake of it. And the question then real estate, a couple of questions and responses that we'll typically hear would be, you know, and, and, and these are questions which I think more power to people, seriously, if they find this to be their key goal or what's your target for, you know, passive income monthly. These are all wonderful KPIs to track. Are they the reason someone is doing it? Is it the reason that we are doing this? Is it, you know, as an LP investor, as an active uh, business owner? Well, certainly not. You know, a person with significantly lower income, but has enough to cover their life expenses, put their kids through a, a great education of their choice and walk the path that they've chosen in life, they've got enough and they may have five units. The person with, you know, 5,000 units who goes home at the end of the night you know, sits, lays down in their bed, turns out the lights and sits there and says, oh man, I guess I'm not that happy with all this. Why am I doing this? I mean, those are very different network scenarios. And so I'm fascinated with this question right now of what is enough. And I, that's where literally in the last week, we've had three very close personal friends who out of the blue, they have respective careers in different industries and they reach out and they engage in these conversations with us. And they ask the question of, how do we get to where you are? And I'm humbled by that short, by that question, but no one is satisfied out the gates when I lead them into a discussion and ask them questions that really, why do they want to go do this? Because folks want the easy playbook. They want a roadmap that is very simple to say, help me get this life where I don't have to work. And in the end, I'm not fulfilled by that. I think as humans, we are all very much our best when we are serving others in some way and in the way we're best equipped to and challenged to. And so that would be the kind of the question I leave for the listeners and the audience is what, you know, what is enough for them? And I absolutely will never claim to have an answer to that question. But all I know is that we're trying to get better ourselves at engaging in that discussion often enough to keep chasing it. And, and hopefully we'll get some version of it and it will arrive closer to it in the coming years. So we'll see. Well, happiness studies indicate that once we increase our income, we're happy for a momentary time. And eventually that happiness wears off and we become dissatisfied. And so we want more. 
And so it becomes this endless chain of chasing more and more. And it isn't income that is ever going to do it. It is never wealth that is actually going to do it. Although there are a lot of studies that indicate people who are wealthy people tend to be happier than certainly people who are in poverty. Of course. Uh, But it isn't that money that is making them happier. It's the ability to have lifestyle choices that is making the wealthier people happier than those who are in poverty. So it is, it's a deep question, and I respect you for continuing to answer that. And actually, as you've developed your wealth, you are continuing to ask that question more frequently. You say you're not going to answer that question for anyone else, and it's probably not even a question that we can have a definitive answer to for ourselves. But Give us some idea of what are some of the things you're finding in terms of what is enough. Yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of lists (laughs) and structures that, you know, they help me focus because I am so darn easily distracted. So I impose a lot of infrastructure on myself intentionally to help thrive and be the person I need to be for the people I love in our business. So the first bucket, I would just say, I'm probably going to even borrow this from, I'm not a huge sports guy, but I do love leadership literature. And I think uh, John Wooden, his famous historical coach, he, I believe, is the one who gets credit for describing life's challenge as a juggling act and as a juggling act of keeping, you know, these really important balls in the air at one time without fully letting them drop. And that includes things such as financial. Got to take care of your family, of course, and we've talked about that. Taking care of family and taking care of friends and having a carving out something for friend relationships, non-family friend relationships, spirituality. <laughs> I think that doesn't mean religion. It could for someone and that's fine. But spirituality applies to 100% of human beings, whether they like it or not, present company included. All of these facets and there's more. And then you've got the personal development. I forget what, how it's referred to, but for me, just to be candid and nerdy for a moment here, I'm a musician and that's one of my hobbies, you know? And so all of these things and within the buckets of all these, of the, these balls you have to juggle in life. The what is enough question is best answered with, at least for me, Alan, is like with a framework like that. Otherwise, it's just too big. You have to break it down into those component parts, I find. And so how do you ensure you build a life where you give breathing room to these things and energy to these things and do it in such a way where you're also serving those. And those are not necessarily going to be equal priority. Clearly, my guitar takes a very deep second, third, fourth, fifth, 100th seat to my two sons, <laughs> which are right at the top of the list, along with Jennifer, you know, my, my COO and my wife. And so that's by design. And I think that every person out there, the, the, where the wealth comes in, Alan, is, as you said earlier, folks in poverty don't have the bandwidth at that moment to wrestle with these, what probably comes across, guaranteed comes across as these lofty questions, right? These lofty questions from people who have done, who have more money probably than they, they need to worry about real problems, quote unquote. And to that, I say hundred percent accurate listener. If you're hearing that, that is a different uh, relative challenge. But as a guy who was fresh out of college, trying to how to figure out a way to pay for my own life, my questions were not the, what is enough question? My question was, how do I pay my rent? You've got to take it at each stage that you're at. And will that change as life's chapters change? You know, 
we all go through stages and chapters in life. We're the same person, but we have different stories and chapters. And so I don't want to drop too much personal development nerdiness on folks, but I will just say that is how I think about it is, are you serving and holding, making room for those buckets and those balls in the air that you're trying to juggle without letting them drop, you know, without letting, you know, there's too many times, for example, I've let friends that I care dearly about and have known for decades go without having a conversation for a year, you know, and now I consider that unacceptable, you know, and so it's really, it's never going to be perfect. And I'm, I've never been, for example, a perfect friend. And I'm always constantly working on quite a flawed human being as the rest of us. But that is how I think about the question of what is enough. And for me, I'm, these days, I wish I could say I'm a simple guy, but I'm really not. It's more about family, our kids, fulfilling, you know, helping other people achieve the same outcomes that we have through our business. And then if I can find some time to go and nerd out on guitar and hang out with my friends, then that, that would be a wonderful day for me. Enlightened investors, what an enjoyable conversation we have had here with a delightful human being. Spencer, it's been a delight being with you again, once again. It's always a pleasure sharing time with you. So thank you for being with us, Spencer. As you know, the feelings are very mutual, Alan. Thank you for talking about this stuff. And I think that this is arguably the most important types of topics, even particularly for folks who are building wealth. So thank you. Wonderful way to start the day. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steve Talker Capital a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steve Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steve Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at stevetalker.com.